see a show of hands. How many of you have heard of just war theory? Okay, more than I thought, actually. Um, just war theory acknowledges that in a fallen world, people may find themselves in circumstances where they must determine whether it's right to go to war and what justice requires in and after a war. Just war theory asks moral questions like, does a just cause exist? Are the intentions right? Are there clear goals to protect what's good and to avoid what's evil? Is it based on legitimate authority? Will the actions be proportionate? Will the good achieved outweigh the harm done? What's the chance of success that this works? It's all worth considering, and I bring it up as some background to a story with my family. Shortly after the war in Ukraine started, I decided to summarize just war theory at the dinner table to evaluate what's happening. I tend to be the one that keeps the mood light in the family. Um, But uh, before I finished the moral obligations in war, uh, one of the kids said something like, well, if those are the principles, it's hard to see how any of the wars we learn about are just. And I felt that as well. Humans often act in unjust ways. Uh, even, even the best efforts are tainted with sin and unrighteous choices. And on top of that, we're limited. We're limited in our knowledge and we're limited in our ability to control the results so that they're good and that it's the best outcome. We all yearn for someone who is not limited in knowledge and ability. We yearn for someone who is without sin. We yearn for someone who acts righteously in everything. We yearn for one who, even in war, would execute God's will perfectly and in a manner that makes all things right. And today we encounter that one person. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Let's read God's word together, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh... He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Our passage has two parts, uh, essentially. Uh, In verses 11 to 16, we see Christ the King revealed for judgment. And then in verses 17 to 21, we see Christ the King's victory over evil. So let's start with Christ the King revealed for judgment. And that's kind of, that's just the heading for this entire uh, part. We won't break it down any further than that. It's, today's sermon is more like painting a collage for you uh, with all these images that they're, they're using to describe Jesus. The first, John sees heaven opened in verse 11. God, again, is making the unseeable to be seeable for John. And he says, behold, a white horse. Now, in the ancient world, uh, we, we've said before that horsemen were the superior war machine uh, we, we've seen a white horse before. In chapter 6, verse 2, there was a white horse that had a rider along with three other horses, uh, and he rode out to conquer. So, and we saw there he was, he was working as an agent of God's judgment. And here we're finding another agent of God's judgment. He too is a warrior, and he's riding out to conquer. But we soon realize that he's vastly superior than the ones we saw before. This rider... John says, is faithful and true. When judgment is at stake, a faithful witness is crucial. You want a witness who speaks truthfully and isn't swayed by the fear of man or the love of money. John has already told us in chapter 1, verse 5, that Jesus is that faithful witness. His, his earthly ministry even demonstrates that he will uphold the truth even unto death. In chapter 3, verse 14, this also meant that when his own people were in error, he didn't play favorites, did he? His true testimony was willing to convict the guilty. Even in the church. The rest of verse 11 says that in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Now, at this time of year, we like to recall Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7, don't we? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. It goes on to talk about the government resting upon his shoulder and how he will uphold David's kingdom with justice and with righteousness. 
But something else, uh, the only other figure who judges and makes war in righteousness is Yahweh. Psalm 9.8, for example. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice, and He judges the world in righteousness. When Jesus judges and makes war in righteousness, not only are we seeing that He is Messiah, we are seeing that He is God in the flesh. And so to see Him judging the world is actually to see God revealed. In verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. And that comes from Daniel chapter 10, verse 16, where the prophet encounters this, this mighty heavenly warrior. Jesus, too, is a heavenly warrior. But the last time John spoke of these eyes like fire was chapter 2, verse 18. And the context, writing that to that church, develops what that means. I am he who searches mind and heart. I am he who searches mind and heart. Jesus' holy gaze penetrates every facade down to the thoughts and intentions of our inmost being. On his head, John continues, are many diadems. In chapter 12, verse 3, and chapter 13, verse 1, we saw that Satan has diadems, seven. The beast has diadems, ten. Jesus here has many diadems. His authority is far superior to theirs. Verse 12 adds that that he has a name written that, that no one knows but himself. Some would say this echoes an Old Testament theme where, where there is mystery to God's name. And the idea would here would be that, that any further insight to God's name must wait until it's revealed on the final day. But another approach, uh, the one I favor, says that, that John moves once again from mystery to revelation, from what's hidden to what's disclosed, right? Earlier in the book, there are things hidden in a scroll, and then it reveals them. Uh, in chapter 17, he called Babylon a mystery, and then he explained her. So also here, there seems to be a depth to Jesus' name that only Jesus himself knows. And yet, by the time we get to verse 16, we learn the written name. King of kings, Lord of lords. More on that in a minute. For now, keep moving to verse 13. He is also clothed in a robe or simply a garment dipped in blood. Now, some would argue this is Jesus' own blood. Uh, The final battle doesn't happen until verses uh, verses, uh, 20 to 21, and so this must represent the blood that Jesus has spilt for the nations before He comes to judge them. And that's very possible, especially in a book uh, where Jesus is the slain lamb and His own blood conquers the enemy. But the imagery... And the language shares much in common with Isaiah 63, verses 2 and 3. And we've looked at that before, um, where, where Yahweh is pictured as a great warrior fighting on behalf of His people. The prophet sees Him returning from a battle, and he says, Why is your garment red? 
And the Lord then answers, I have trodden the winepress alone. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. And that's what I believe John is using here to describe Jesus. He sees Jesus as the divine warrior of Isaiah 63 who comes to tread God's winepress. It's a, it's a warrior's outfit, and it anticipates uh, Jesus treading the winepress in verse 15, which also quotes from Isaiah 63. So if you take that approach, though, it shouldn't minimize the point that Jesus spilled his own blood for the nations first. At the cross, he did war against evil, and when he did, he soaked his garments not with our blood, but with his own blood in our place. That's true and glorious, and it is our only hope. And if you are here today and don't know that, you need to know that Christ came into the world to die on a cross for your sins, that they might be taken away, that all of the judgment you deserve at the end of the age might be poured on him first in your place. If you trust in him, you will not experience the slaughter that he brings here you will experience eternal life in the kingdom of God. That is true and glorious. But when he comes to judge the nations, which John is seeing here, he's dressed for war. Verse 13 also says, the name by which he is called is the word of God. That appears only one other place in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, we're going to talk extensively about that next Sunday, Lord willing, on, on Christmas. Uh, for now, it's enough to observe that in the Old Testament, God's Word reveals who God is, and it also enacts God's purpose. Okay? And so, as the Word here, Jesus reveals who God is, and He enacts God's purpose. Even in judgment, Jesus here embodies God's revelation. Verse 14 then mentions that armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Jesus on white horses. Again, this warrior theme is continuing. Jesus is leading his armies here, and it should remind you, things should be going off in your head of what Yahweh was like. Yahweh, Lord of hosts, Lord of armies, right? And now it's being applied to Jesus. He has his armies. He leads his army. And uh, some would suggest that these are angels. Since chapter 15, verse 6, we see angels wearing pure, bright linen. Uh, but several clues lead me to see these armies as Jesus' own followers. For starters, if you look up in chapter 19, verse 8, it describes the bride of Christ as wearing fine linen, bright and pure. Uh, in chapter 17, verse 14, we learn that those with Jesus at the final war are the chosen and the faithful. And this also fits the theme throughout Revelation where God's people are depicted as a royal army of priests that we've seen elsewhere, right? So that's the way I take it here. Others would say it's both, angels and God's people. If you see it as God's people, though, I mean, Jesus' army 
isn't really garbed in standard battle attire, are they? I mean, who wears white linens into battle? That's because they won't be doing the fighting. In the activity that follows, it's Jesus who does the fighting. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. So two things are coming together here. From his mouth, it has to do with the words he speaks. And then a sharp sword, of course, you know, is an instrument of war. It's, it's a weapon to conquer your enemy. Notice the sword is not in his hand. It is in his mouth. So if you put these two things together... Jesus conquers his enemy by the words he speaks. The image comes from two places in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4 of the Messiah. It says, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. With his lips, the breath of his lips. Isaiah 49, verse 2, again, of the Messiah. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. What John is doing here is he's combining these images to describe how Jesus will judge his enemies. He will speak words and it will happen. You might even say that there is a war of words in the book of Revelation. In chapter 12, verse 15, the dragon, what do we see? We see him spewing things from his mouth to overwhelm the church. In chapter 16, verse 13, the beast and the false prophet, they join him as unclean spirits come from their mouths to deceive the nations against Jesus. But here we find out that their words are no match for Jesus' words. Now, on the ground, this, this, uh, this happens in various ways throughout Scripture. Right? God speaks a word of judgment and different things happen at different times, right? So he'll speak a word of judgment, and the earth would open up and swallow Korah's children, right? Uh, or he would speak a word of judgment and against Sennacherib and, and his armies, and, a, and an angel comes and slays 185,000 soldiers in a night, uh, or at other times, he speaks a word of judgment and it throws everybody on earth into a panic and they kill themselves. And there's very good reason to believe that's what will happen here. There are prophecies like Ezekiel 38, 21, where God speaks and it turns every man's sword against himself. Or Yahweh speaks in Zechariah 14, 13, and it throws every throws everybody into a panic, and both of those places are talking about this final battle here. So that, that may be very well. When, when he speaks his word of judgment and slays, and slays everyone, he's turning everybody against themselves so that evil self-destructs and they are no more. However the details play out in history, though, what we're seeing here is that Jesus' word wins the day. He will strike down the nations with his word. Verse 15 also says that Jesus will rule them with a rod of iron. That's from Psalm chapter 2. The nations raged against the Lord and his anointed king. 
These earthly leaders are pictured as plotting against God and his anointed. They're gonna, they want to overthrow him. Let us cast his cords away from us. And God, we see, sits in the heavens and he laughs. But even more, he then gives a special decree. He says to his king, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In Psalm 2, we see that God manifests his rule on earth through his anointed king. And according to verse 15, Jesus is that king. He fulfills the hope of Psalm chapter 2. Part of that includes treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And that's next in verse 15. And some of this we observed earlier from Isaiah 63. God's judgment will be like treading a winepress. Joel chapter 3 also talks about this. Go in, God says, and tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. God's enemies here are being compared to, to grapes filling a winepress, and he tramples them down until their, their, their blood flows. And of course, we saw a while back in chapter 14, the blood of the grape was their evil. It's a hard metaphor. But the point is to show how great evil is. It, it fills up the wine vats. The judgment will be deserved. And then finally, in verse 16, we reach that written name that he mentioned, that he alluded to earlier on his robe or garment again, and, and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Side note, this isn't justification for getting tattoos. All right? That's closed parenthesis. Uh, Jesus here, what we're getting is... He's got a name written on his garment, and it's the part of the garment covering the thigh. Why the thigh? Because throughout Scripture, that's where the sword hangs. Okay, so what's the point? If the sword is coming from his mouth, not, it's not in the scabbard. It's already coming from his mouth. What's the point in bringing this idea up about his name written on his thigh where the sword hangs? It's because he wants us to see the power behind the sword. He wants us to see the authority that Jesus has to wield the sword. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the highest of them all, in other words. Well, how high? Like, how high of a king is he? Well, this title comes from Daniel 437 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You've heard it called the Septuagint. That's what LXX means on the screen there. The context is where God has already humbled King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Turned him into an ox for the eight grass. And then Nebuchadnezzar's reason returns to him after he repents, right? He, his reason returns to him 
And the reasonable thing to do is to honor God. And so Nebuchadnezzar honors Daniel's God, the Most High, and as he does, he gives the, the Most High this title, God of Gods, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He does it again in 1017. You'll find similar language in Daniel. Now, he does this because Yahweh alone has the power to remove kings and to set them in their place. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar just experienced that, right? He had boasted before, and Yahweh says, thank you, I'll put you down here. Then his reason returns to him, and he says, that's, that's the true God, and he is most high. He is God of gods, Lord of lords. Well, in Revelation, John sees Jesus removing rebel kingdoms and establishing his own reign, and it's here that he gives him the title that's reserved for the most high, King of kings, Lord of lords. In other words, Jesus is the most high God. He is Yahweh. That's who wields the sword. That's the kind of authority he has. And that brings us to the second part, Christ the King's victory over evil. Christ the King's victory over evil. In verses 17 to 21, we encounter a significant war, and it's one that we've already heard of twice. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 14, we see the beast, right, gathering the kings from the whole world against Jesus at Armageddon. And we also learn that Armageddon symbolized the place where duped kings go to die. We just got a little glimpse of that in chapter 16. And then in chapter 17, verse 14, we got a summary of how this battle is going to go. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. These verses picture the same war. It's not a different war. It's the same one being developed a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit, uh, little bit here. And, and here, he's developing it by drawing from Ezekiel's prophecy. Okay, uh, verse, in verse 17, you see this angel. He invites the bird of prey to the great supper of God. Verse 18 says, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. That's essentially a quotation from Ezekiel 39, verse 4, and verses 17 to 20. There's this prophecy there about a future ruler named Gog. And you know what? He's, very myster- he's a very mysterious character, and he has a whole lot in common with Satan and the beast in Revelation. With many other nations, God gathers, the war, gathers to war against the Lord and his people. But God's people have no reason to fear. In Ezekiel 39, the Lord promises to make Gog powerless. His vast armies will fall in defeat, and as a result, the birds of prey will come and feast on the dead warriors. Revelation 19 speaks to the fulfillment of this prophecy. Nations are pictured here gathering against Christ, but they are no match for them. His, their doom is certain. I mean, it's so certain. Notice the angel invites the birds before the battle even happens. Is is that certain? It's going to happen. Y'all go ahead and gather. 
But something else to note is that when the war finally arrives in verse 19 and 20, there's really no fighting. They gather for war, but the nations have no chance. Right? We, we've, we saw this before when we went through Joel's prophecy. In Joel chapter 3, the Lord gathers them for war, and then it says, and the Lord sits and judges them. It's like, you don't sit in a battle, but the point is they have no hope. They have no chance before the king of kings. So also here, he gathers them only to seal their fate. It says the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The lake of fire will come up two more times, uh, so I won't spend much time on it today, only to say that chapter 20, verse 14, calls it the second death, and it symbolizes the place of eternal punishment. The beast and the false prophet go there, and the rest seem to experience a temporary punishment, only to be raised later for eternal punishment in chapter 20, verse 15. The point, though, is that enemies don't stand a chance against the king of kings. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus' word will prevail and Jesus' judgments will be final. So that's the vision. Christ the King revealed for judgment, and then Christ the King victorious over evil. Now, how should a vision like that impact us? I'll tell you a few ways it has impacted me and as I've been thinking about this. One, consider your standing before Jesus. Consider your standing before Jesus. I mean, Revelation 19 presents two suppers again, right? Revelation is this book of, it paints the world in twos. Two women, two cities, right? Here we're getting two suppers, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and now we've seen the great supper of God. All who worship Jesus now, who love Jesus now, they will feast with 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 Him in the marriage supper with joy and with singing, but all who reject Jesus' Lordship and worship the ways of the beast they will perish. So to whom do you belong? Is an important question to ask. Verse 18 mentions kings and captains and free and slave and small and great. It doesn't matter who you are or where you stand in society. Judgment is coming and there's no escaping Jesus' holy gaze. His eyes are like fire. He sees everything down to the intentions of your heart. We need a Savior And this same judge is that Savior. As I said before, before he comes to defeat the nations, he comes to die for a people from all nations. So don't forget his humility. King of kings, Lord of lords, sovereign judge, holy warrior, and yet he condescended to us. Every right to judge and destroy, and yet born to a virgin's womb. He took the form of a servant. He became the lamb who spilled his blood for your sins. You will not find a greater humility. You cannot find a better king. So come to this Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will 
not perish like the enemies here. You will find eternal life and rest in his kingdom and at his table. And then second, respond to his presence among you now. Respond to his presence among you now. Don't forget, this is the Christ that walks among the lampstands, which are the churches in chapter 1, verse 13. He sees you. He sees me. He's with us, and he, and he weighs our faithfulness to him. Can you imagine what Pergamum felt like when they first heard chapter 19 read to them? I mean, think about the process of, of hearing this prophecy read in one sitting. That's what it's designed to, it's how it's designed to be read, in one sitting. And think about it. Jesus called them out by name. It'd be like Jesus, you're getting a letter from Jesus that says, Redeemer Church, I commend you for this. But you have not been faithful in this. Right? And so they're, they're hearing these things, right? And they, and they hear their name called among the seven, Pergamum, right? And their ears perk up. Oh, he's talking about us now. And he commends them for holding fast to his name in the face of persecution. And, but then he goes on to expose how they were tolerating idolatry. I have a few things against you, Jesus says. You have some here. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And this king then says, Repent. If not, I will come to you soon, and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoa, that sounds serious already in chapter 2. And then they bump along and they encounter the king of kings of chapter 19. Slaying the nations with the sword of his mouth. I tell you, that'll sober you up in a hurry. That'll make you serious about the fight against sin. It's hard to give in to sin. It's hard to continue in sin with this vision of Jesus before you. So memorize it and meditate on it and sing about it and remind each other of uh, of it. But I also want you to consider how it might have encouraged the faithful. So you also have churches like Smyrna and Philadelphia. They are laying down their lives. They're not giving in to idolatry and sexual immorality. They are bearing up well under the persecution and the imprisonment. And Jesus walks with them. This Jesus walks with them. This Jesus knows their sufferings. This Jesus is standing by them. This Jesus is going to avenge their blood. He doesn't overlook the sufferings of his people. He will judge our enemies. What would that free you to do if you're like the Christians in Smyrna who are experiencing lots of persecution? What would it free you to do? Well, it would free you to entrust yourself to Him who judges justly. It would free you to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because you know, and you've been reassured by this this vision, 
that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Vengeance is not something for us to take up now. To use Paul's words in Romans 12, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. How do you love your enemy when they treat you unjustly? How do you act in honorable ways when people bring all sorts of horror against you? How do you pursue peace with all when you are so tempted to just get even right now? A vision like this one. This vision encourages you in the face of that kind of of conflict. And it tells you that while your enemies may seem large and powerful, your God is greater. He will judge. He will win. He will not forsake you. He will not overlook the wrongs that are done to you. Christ fights for his people. He will rid the world of all that threatens you one day. So trust Him to make all things right. You know what? He does a way better job in righteousness. He judges and makes war. And finally, let this vision help you love Jesus' appearing. Let it help you love Jesus' appearing. When Paul was at the end of his ministry, he wrote, he writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, this righteous judge that we've been reading about, the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love Jesus' appearing? If you find yourself saying, yes, I do, but probably not enough. I imagine most of us are there. If that's what you find yourself saying, let this vision help you. I mean, what a glorious vision of Jesus every yearning you have for a good and righteous judge, here he is. Every longing you have for a king to to end evil and to right all wrongs with guaranteed success, here he is. Every hunger for someone with, with power to transform the whole world, here he is. Every prayer that you have made for healing and joy and peace and a new world, He is the one who will answer them. 
every desire you have to see his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Jesus is the one to bring it. There's no one else like him. We're doing the next generation a disservice when all they see is cartoon Jesus with good hair. Read them the Bible. Like this one right here, Revelation 19. That Jesus shatters the, virgin, the versions that we often imagine. It's easy for us to create a Jesus that's safe, but the true Jesus will not be tamed by man. He's not our homeboy. He's not our co-pilot. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He rose victorious over sin and death. He rules all nations. He will come again like a warrior to judge all evil. So when you read the next news headline that discourages you, when you feel like the enemy is winning, when you don't think his kingdom will prevail, when you feel the wrongs done against you and you are, we all feel this, like, come on. Meditate on this vision of Jesus. God has, hope, God has opened heaven to help you see more of him and to increase your love for his final appearing. We are going to sing about that now with a couple of songs. Let me pray us toward that. Father, thank you for this vision of Christ. Put it, uh, write it upon our hearts so that in everything we encounter as we persevere, we will be encouraged to stay faithful to him. Lord, give us much joy as we think about his appearing and much hope. And when it is hard, reassure, help us be reassured that this day will come and your word will be victorious. Amen. Amen.